Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Today we're going to pick up from where Pastor Inro left off last Lord's Day with verse 14. And we will cover down to verse 29. What chapter? Did I say John 5? Okay, sorry. You said 14. So I'm covering from 14 to 29, but to give us context, we'll start in verse 1 of John chapter 5. Hear now the infallible and inspired word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramit called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Well, who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, and that all may honor the son just as they honored the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Father also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this most sacred time when your word is open and declared, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear these most glorious truths. Father, you have told us in this gospel already that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And our text today is yet but another testimony to that glory. 
Father, remove the veil that is over our hearts to see that glory once again in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I got to tell you, a couple weeks ago as I was listening to Pastor JP and then anticipating what Enro was going to cover, I started to get a little excited because I can see where when it came to be uh, my turn to preach this Lord's Day that we were going to be somewhere around verses 18 or 19. And the reason it excited me is because if you just heard, we just got into the doctrine of the resurrection. As I think most of y'all know, I was once part of a movement that interpreted the fulfillment of all prophecy in such a way that it basically denied this resurrection. Of course, I didn't go around saying that I denied the resurrection of the dead, but in order to make that doctrine fit our theory, I had to redefine it. And of course, when you redefine it, you end up rejecting the doctrine as it is to be rightly understood and has been understood in the church universally for the last 2,000 plus years. I want to remind you what our confession says reflecting Christian orthodoxy. At the last day, such as, as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And of course, this is what ex- we exactly denied and rejected as hyperpreterists. And so when I came to see the error of my way, this doctrine became very special to me, very important. It's a point of emphasis I've made for the last 10 years. But there's another reason I got excited, because of some recent events that have happened online. This doctrine has begun to become front and center for me. And I've been spending a lot of time on it recently. Now, by way of introduction, let me just tell you what has happened online briefly, to make this doctrine become front and center for me again. So I'm sure many of you may recognize this name. There's a gentleman named Gary DeMar. He's a very popular author in some of our circles, particularly the Reformed and post-millennial camp. Well, for years now, we had suspected, some of us, that he was doing exactly as I had did, redefining resurrection in such a way as to deny this standard orthodox expression. There have been little hints here and there. And then around 12 months ago, people started to press him on it, and the clues were becoming stronger. One such clue is when he asked a guy how bodies are going to be united with souls since they no longer exist. Could it be, he asked, that we get new spiritual body at death? Now that alone was alarming enough. But since he was asking the question, many did not press it. Now, fast forward to October of this year, in a podcast, he comes right out and states, I believe that when you die, you go to be with the Lord, and you get a new body at that time, a spiritual body. And so what he was offering up as an alternative to orthodoxy 12 months ago in the form of a question, he is now explicitly affirmed as his belief. And, of course, this started a firestorm on Facebook, of which I was a part of. Now, I'm telling you all this because if you take the time to read the hundreds of comments, possibly thousands, that have resulted because of this little firestorm, you'll notice something very disturbing. 
The hyper-prayerists, of course, are loving every minute of it. It just feeds right into what they do and they teach. That's no surprise. What is surprising, however, are the number of evangelicals, some who even claim to be Reformed, who don't think that this doctrine is a big deal. You have some who will affirm the doctrine as we have defined in our confession, but then they'll say things like, well, it's not that important. Eschatology does not affect the gospel. It does not affect salvation. And then you have others who essentially arguing the same thing, reject the orthodox view entirely again because, hey, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't change our understanding of the gospel. It doesn't change our understanding of salvation. It's as if resurrection, whatever it is, was just some random, non-essential thing that God adds on to everything that we can either take or leave. And there are thousands of Christians saying this. In fact, when I personally asked Gary DeMar whether or not he believed in a final judgment on the last day, which coincides with the resurrection bodily, he said, I don't concern myself with last day's issues. My concern is with how eschatology affects how we live now. And he has said this multiple times. In fact, he has belittled those who have challenged him on this issue, claiming that these people are obsessed with things that may or may not happen thousands of years from now and are neglecting the here and now. Instead of fussing over this, we ought to be fussing over Marxism and abortion and all the rest. What God is going to do in the end, if there even is going to be an end, has no bearing on our lives here and now. And person after person after person, it's like, amen, Gary, amen. But here's what I want to ask you today. Is that true? Does that attitude reflect our Lord's teaching? Does it reflect what the apostles have said? Is it true that this doctrine of resurrection isn't that big of a deal and playing around with it is of little consequence because it doesn't affect our understanding of the gospel or of salvation or how we are to live in the here and now? Well, let me just go ahead and answer that. Such an attitude is the exact opposite of what we find in Scripture. And there are a number of places I could turn to to demonstrate that. But in the Lord's providence today, he has us right here in John chapter 5. And what we find here alone is sufficient to demonstrate that these folks have failed to understand the significance and the essential nature of this doctrine. In fact, I'll just lay out all the cards right now. To make light of this doctrine is to attack the gospel. It is to attack the work of salvation. It is to make light of the glory of God and of the glory of Christ our Lord. And I believe that can be demonstrated here from John chapter 5. But before we dig in, let me remind you yet again why John wrote this gospel. I know we've said it a million times, but I think it is especially important now. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, you see all of this here in John chapter 5. We have a sign. We have talk of Jesus being revealed, particularly in his relationship with God. We have talk of belief. We have talk of eternal life, 
And all of this is meshed in with the doctrine of resurrection. This isn't me talking. This isn't some hypercretalist talking. This isn't some old fuddy-duddy cranky reform guy talking. Our Lord is the one who brings up the doctrine of resurrection in answering the Jewish leaders about his identity and his glory. He made this an issue, not me. I mean, if you're going to bother reading your Bible at all, you can't escape the fact that our Lord brings it up here in John chapter 5. And so you have to ask yourself, what's the connection? What's the importance? The question is not, is it important? Do we really think the Lord is going to waste our time here with peripheral matters? It's not, is it important? It's, what's the importance? What's the connection? Why did the Lord himself draw attention to this doctrine here in this story? Those are the questions I want to explore a little bit in this text today. Now, one of the first observations I want to relate to you is this. Keep in mind that this whole chapter is a single unit. And what I mean by that is remember chapter 4 ended with Jesus leaving Galilee. And then chapter 5 begins with Jesus going up to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he visits this pool to heal a man. This in turn led to some complaints by the religious leaders because he did it on the Sabbath. And that in turn leads Jesus to defend himself, which covers the rest of the chapter. And then chapter 6 begins with saying, after this, Jesus went away to the other side, the Sea of Galilee. So all of chapter 5 is connected. It's all one event. What Jesus ends up saying about the resurrection flows out of his dealings with the invalid and with his dealings with the Jewish leaders. So one of the questions I had was, well, what's the connection, if any, with resurrection of the dead to what Jesus did at the pool and with his beef with the Jewish leaders? Because this is all one event, I think we're warranted to ask that question. Another way to put it would be this. I think Jesus was very intentional in going to that pool to heal that man. I think he was intentional on what he did and how he did it. And that intentionality gives rise to the occasion for Jesus to not only reveal who he is, but to also reveal his mission, which by his own admission necessarily includes the resurrection of the dead. I think it's all connected. Now, obviously, Pastor Enro covered a great deal of that story last week, so I don't want to get too much into details, but let's just quickly review what took place. As we said, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and while he was there, he went to a pool, which in Aramaic was called Bethesda. And now at this pool, there were a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And verse 5 says there was one man who had been there, uh, who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, one of the things I find interesting here is that Jesus only goes to one man. And yet John tells us there was a 
multitude there, a very large crowd. In fact, after Jesus healed the man, he immediately took off because of the crowd. Jesus probably did that because once he realized, or once they realized what he had done, they might have crowded him. And Jesus had another purpose for this man, as we'll we'll see. He had more to do with him. But whatever the reason, notice that Jesus goes to a multitude of weak and disabled folks and yet selects one man out of the crowd to heal. I can't help but hear verse 21 in this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Just something to think about. At any rate, he picks this man and then he asks, do you want to be healed? And the man responds, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Again, here, I can't help but hear verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. And in verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. But then what happened? Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, now sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And that man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now isn't that interesting? Jesus was not just interested in physical healing. He healed the man and then says to him, See, you are well, now sin no more. Live holy. I have healed your body, not as an end in itself, but so that you will walk in holiness. And if that sin issue isn't dealt with in your life, something worse is going to happen to you. Well, what is Jesus referring to there? Again, I can't help but hear verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, the resurrection of condemnation. Beloved, do you not see some of what Jesus spoke of regarding the resurrection of his power already at work in this interaction with the paralytic. At his voice, at his command, the man gets up. And at once, John says, he was healed. And he's doing this with a guy that he selected out of a large crowd, giving life to whom he will. And then he warns the man, now that you're well, physically, go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Beloved, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus here in this encounter is giving us a little foretaste, a little preview of resurrection. What Jesus will go on to teach regarding the resurrection and his power and his sovereign will, you actually see him acting it out with this man at the pool. I don't think this is just a coincidence. I don't think these were random acts. To borrow the words of John Chrysostom, 
Jesus had, quote, given no trifling proof of the resurrection by bracing the paralytic. But then it gets more interesting. Verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who was the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Again, is this just another coincidence? Or was Jesus intentional in healing this man on the Sabbath? And if so, what was the purpose? I mean, he didn't just heal the man. He told the man to get up, take your bed, and walk. Surely Jesus knew this was going to trigger some people. And of course it did. And what was Jesus' response to that? My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, I think this, personally, is the key to the whole chapter. I think this is the central verse in the whole thing. And why do I say that? Because up to this point, we hear this story about this interaction with the paralytic. That, in turn, angers some religious leaders because it was on the Sabbath. Then Jesus answers their anger by saying, my father is working until now and I am working. And then with that, he then goes into this teaching about his relationship with the father and the resurrection of the dead and so on. This verse bridges his act of healing with the teaching that he gives in verses 19 to the end of the chapter. So what does it mean? Well, obviously the religious leaders took it to mean that Jesus was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that was certainly part of it. And by the way, Jesus never backed away from that. He owned it. But why would that be the response to their irritation over the Sabbath? What's the connection of my father is working until now and I am working to the Sabbath? Well, let's ask this question. What is the Sabbath? Genesis 2 1 through 3, thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Calvin states, and this is a little lengthy, but please listen to this. I think he hits it right on, right on the head. The Sabbath, or rest of God, therefore, is not idleness, but true perfection, which brings along with it a calm state of peace. Nor is this inconsistent with what Moses says, that God put an end to his works. For he means that, after having completed the formation of the world, God consecrated that day that men might employ in in meditating on his works. Yet he did not cease to sustain by his power the world in which he had made to govern it by his wisdom, to support it by his goodness, and to regulate all things according to his pleasure, both in heaven and on earth. In six days, therefore, the creation of the world was completed, but the administration of it is still continued, and God incessantly worketh in maintaining and preserving the order of it, as Paul informs us that in him we live and move and are. 
And David informs us that all things stand so long as the Spirit of God upholds them and that they fail as soon as he withdraws his support. Nor is it only by general providence that the Lord maintains the world which he has created, but he arranges and regulates every part of it, and more especially by his protection, he keeps and guards believers whom he has received under his care and guardianship. That last part, I believe, is especially relevant here. In saying that the Father is working until now, Jesus is pointing out not only to a general providence that the Lord maintains, without which nothing can exist, but even more especially, ever since sin entered the world, the Father has been working to restore man and creation. That's his work. And beloved, what else came into the world through sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. And here our Lord says that not only is my father working, I am working as well. And so as Calvin goes on to state by saying that I work, Christ now explains the end and use of the miracle. There's the connection. Did you catch that? By saying I am working also, he just worked. He just did something. The pool. He is now explaining the end, the goal, the purpose of that miracle. Namely, that by means of it, he may be acknowledged to be the Son of God, for the object which he had in view in all his words and actions was to show that he was the author of salvation. And what he now claims for himself belongs to his divinity, as the apostle also says that he upholdeth all things by his powerful will. But when he testifies that he is God, it is that being manifested in the flesh, he may perform the office of Christ. And when he affirms that he came from heaven, it is chiefly for the purpose of informing us for what purpose he came down to earth. Purpose. Did you catch that? The goal and the use of that miracle that we read about in the first part of John chapter 5 was one to reveal Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God manifested in the flesh to perform the office of Christ. See John's purpose statement, chapter 20. And two, to show that he was the author of salvation. And three, to inform us for what purpose he came. And then what does this declaration then lead to? Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then Jesus launches into his defense, a defense in which he not only doubles down on who he is, but explains in even more detail what his mission is, his purpose. In other words, it's exactly as what I thought it was in the beginning. It's all connected. So this is why I say to you now, you'd better not play around with the doctrine of resurrection. Folks, this is not a game. This was no accident. This was no random act that Jesus did at the pool as some cheap parlor trick just to say, hey, check me out. Look what I can do. This was the very expression of not only who our Lord is, but what he is about. 
his mission. And so when he launches into his defense and he brings up the doctrine of resurrection, he's telling us this is his work. This is the father's work. This encapsulates the very mission that I have, my purpose. So I ask, is the doctrine of resurrection salvific? You better believe it is. Is the doctrine of uh, resurrection essential to the gospel? Yes. Is there a very real danger in belittling, uh, belittling Christ and belittling the Father and the glory of God when you play around with this doctrine? Absolutely. And I love the way John Piper puts it here. <clears throat> After I do my work, I like to go back and read other guys and see what they say. And Again, he says something here I think it's right on the money and basically expressing the same thing Calvin said. He said, what is he saying when he says, I'm working? I think something like this. My father and I created a perfect world, paradise, and then we rested. Not that we were tired, but stepped back, as it were, and enjoyed the perfect display of our own glory revealed in our creative handiwork. That's what the Sabbath is for, the restful, focused enjoyment of God. But then sin entered the world, and through sin came sickness and calamity and death. And from that moment, my father and I have been working in many ways that you don't understand, to restore a Sabbath paradise to the earth. We have been working to overcome sin and sickness and death. Even your own law, which contains the Sabbath command, was part of our working to conquer sin and to hold back the miseries of unrighteousness and point you forward to a Messiah, a Savior, who would come and perform the decisive acts of restoration and transformation toward the new heavens and new earth. When I heal a man and intentionally do it on the Sabbath, I am showing you something about myself. What was happening at the pool of Bethesda was that my father and I were revealing the world that is coming. It is a world in which there will be no sickness and a world in which there will be no sin. My father is working until now and I am working. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples but these are written that you may believe that he is the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. In verses 19 and 29, give further detail into just that, the who and the what. So first there is the who. Who is this Jesus? Verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, the Father and the Son are one, which is exactly what the Jews thought he meant and their reason to kill him. And he's expressing here that the Father and Son have one perfect will. As the Reformation Heritage Study Bible notes, all the works of the Trinity and creation, providence, and salvation engage all three divine persons in united action for they share one divine power. Beloved, has this registered with you yet of who this Christ is? Are you beholding his glory? Are you beholding his power, his might? Friends, I'm absolutely blown away when I read comments on Facebook, especially from guys who claim to be reformed, when they say things like, well, 
How is Jesus going to raise dead bodies that have been decomposed and have been burned up or eaten by animals and so on? Are you kidding me? Have you lost your mind? Have you completely lost sight of who we're talking about here? Did you not get the memo in the first chapter, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Have you not read Colossians 1 lately? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Have you forgotten Hebrews 1? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Beloved, the story of the paralytic at the beginning of this chapter should have shook you to your core. We just gloss over it. Here's a man who had been disabled for 38 years. And with one word, one command, Jesus says, get up and walk. And at once this man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. How dare we sit around and reason like a bunch of foolish reprobates? Well, I just don't understand how he's going to do it. Really? And I suppose you can tell me how Christ created all things out of nothing? I suppose you can explain to me how Christ presently upholds all the universe by the word of his power? You weren't meant to understand how it works. When he speaks, nothingness obeys him. You are to stand in awe of his power. When he speaks, decompose matter, the same matter he thinks into existence, obeys him. And you are to stand in awe and worship. When the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, went to Christ and tried to trap him on this very doctrine, what did he reply to them? You're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Friends, you're playing with fire when you begin 
to alter these doctrines because you can't seem to wrap your mind around it. Who do you think you're dealing with here? John 5, 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Greater works. Jesus just completely healed instantly a paralytic of 38 years with just the power of his voice. And yet greater works than these he will show him so that you will marvel. But what are these greater works? Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Again, the Reformation Heritage Bible notes Christ's healings were signs that he would raise the dead in the last day unto judgment and in this age to spiritual life. These are the works of God. Calvin notes, by these words, he means that the miracle which he had performed in curing the man was not the greatest of the works enjoined on him by the Father, for he had only given in it a slight taste of that grace of which he is properly both minister and author, namely to restore life to the world. Beloved, I say it again, it, it was not the decision of some ecumenical council or some assemblies of divines at Westminster to decide that raising the dead and bringing judgment on the last day was essential to the honor and glory and work of Christ. Christ said it was. It's right here in our text. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And as the Father judges no one in, in that he has given to the Son all judgment, the Father did so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Explain to me how in the world you are not dishonoring the Son and the Father by robbing him of this mission of this purpose. You can't divorce the who from the what. Well, this now leads me to my final part, the what. At this point, there are some of you may be saying, well, Jason, I don't deny the resurrection of the dead. I just don't define it the way orthodoxy has defined it. Well, let's look at how Jesus defined it right here in this text. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, here's what I love so much about this text. I mean, there are a number of places you can go to in the Bible to learn of the doctrine of resurrection. But what I love about this text so much is that Jesus is giving us a more fuller picture of the doctrine than what you might find elsewhere. There are two extremes that people go to 
when formulating a doctrine of resurrection. One extreme is to argue that the resurrection deals solely with the salvation of the soul and does not concern the body at all. This is what you see, for example, with hyperrhetorists and others. But then the other extreme is to overreact to that and to restrict resurrection solely in terms of the physical. The Reformed, by and large, have argued that when death came into the world because of sin, death is to be understood in its full sense, spiritually, temporally, or physically, and eternal. And I believe that is exactly, exactly what you see going on here in the resurrection. It's not either or. It's all of it. It's physical, spiritual, and eternal. And these aspects correspond to what we saw in the story with the paralytic. There's the physical, the bodily, see, you are well. And then there's the spiritual and eternal. Now, sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Well, the first aspect we see in verse 25 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So real quickly, who are these dead? What's going on here? Well, I believe... This is what some may call a spiritual resurrection. Or if you want to borrow the words of John in Revelation, the first resurrection. Notice what Jesus says here. The hour is coming and is now here. And so whatever this coming to life is, it's happening then and there. Okay, that's your first clue. But then secondly, notice he calls them the dead. Notice he doesn't say those in the tomb like he does with the other group. He just simply calls them the dead. And also notice he doesn't use the word all like he does with the other group. And then thirdly, these dead who hear the voice of the Son of God live. That's it. There's no mention of judgment. There's no mention of condemnation. And if that wasn't enough to convince you, consider what he said just prior to this in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Notice, whoever believes in him who has sent me has, not will have, but has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed, not will pass, but has passed from death to life. I believe this is clearly referring to a first stage of resurrection life for the believer. And this is not a stage that the unbeliever participates in. Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6, may very well be a parallel to this. It says, where they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. John Lightfoot notes 
But the raising of the dead is taken in Scripture also in a borrowed sense, namely for the reviving and quickening of those that were dead in trespasses and sin. And that sense doth seem more agreeable to this place, because our Savior in the verse before doth apparently speak of such spiritual reviving. Matthew Poole notes, But the most and best interpreters rather understand these words of those who are dead in trespasses and sins, in the quickening life, and in the quickening in life mentioned in Ephesians 2.1, which is called the first resurrection, Revelation 25. Because of what was said immediately before, that such a one is passed from death to life, and what was said before, he that heareth my word agreeeth with what is said here, of hearing the voice of Christ, and what followeth seemeth better to agree with this sense. And then lastly, John Calvin writes on these words, but hath passed, he says, some Latin copies have this verb in the future tense, will pass from death to life, but this has arisen from the ignorance and rashness of some person who, not understanding the meaning of the evangelist, has taken more liberty than he ought to have taken. For the Greek word hath passed has no ambiguity whatever. There is no impropriety in saying that we have already passed from death to life, from the incorruptible seed of life, or for the incorruptible seed of life resides in the children of God, and they already sit in the heavenly glory with Christ by hope. And they have the kingdom of God already established with them, Luke 17:21. For though their life be hidden, they do not on that account cease to possess it by faith. And though they are besieged on every side by faith, they do not cease to be calm on this account, that they know that they are in perfect safety through the protection of Christ. Yet let us remember that believers are now in life in such a manner that they always carry about with them the cause of death. But the spirit who dwells in us is life which will at length destroy the remains of death. For it is a true saying of Paul that death is the last enemy that will be destroyed. And indeed, this passage contains nothing that relates to the complete destruction of death or the entire manifestation of life. But though life be only begun in us, Christ declares that believers are so certain of obtaining it that they ought not to fear death. And we need not wonder at this since they are united to him who is the inexhaustible fountain of life. Ephesians 2, I believe, references this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, I believe Calvin was correct when he stated that here life be only begun in us with this stage of the resurrection. Yet this is not the complete picture. And for that, we now turn to verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
Note here first, he says that the hour is coming, but he leaves out the words he said earlier, it is now here. Whatever this rising to life is, it's entirely future. Secondly, notice how he describes those who are called, all who are in the tombs. Not all, or all, not some. And he doesn't just describe them as dead, he says they're in the tombs, in contrast to how he described the first group. And then thirdly, notice who make up this resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As that first part militates against those who would restrict resurrection solely to the physical, I believe now in this second part, Christ militates against those who would deny the physical. You get the full picture here of resurrection. For the reprobate, those who have denied Christ... For those who have denied the gospel, there's only one form of resurrection they will ever see. But make no mistake about it, they will be raised. And they will stand before Christ. And they will be judged. The main point here, says Piper, is that Jesus raises all the dead. Let that sink in for a moment. All the dead who have ever lived will be raised from death. By Jesus. Millions of Chinese and Nigerians and Indonesians and Germans. He will raise Julius Caesar from the dead, Judas Iscariot, Isaiah the prophet, Michelangelo, Bach, Adolf Hitler, Marilyn Monroe, Kurt Cobain, Princess Diana, Michael Jackson, Ted Kennedy. He will raise them and they will stand before him, and you will too. All these people, and millions more, says Piper, all people without exception will be raised from the dead by Jesus. Jesus is universally superior to all people. He is universally sovereign over all these people. He holds them in being and will give existence to their decomposed bodies so that there is a continuity between the body that was and the body that will be. He lets no one go out of existence. There is no such loss for the righteousness and no such hope for the wicked. Jesus will raise them all. Again, recall what we heard in Revelation 20. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Well, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. For the rebel against Christ, this will be the only resurrection they participate in. And the result of that will be eternal condemnation, eternal death. But for the elect, this stage of the resurrection will complete what Christ has started in the here and now, the life that he has begun. Listen to John 6, starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 5. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, beloved, this is the fuller picture of the doctrine of resurrection. Notice here, all that he has given me, I will raise him up on the last day. Clearly, there is a last day. And clearly, despite what any form of preterism says, that last day did not occur already because all whom the Father gave to the Son will be raised. And we weren't all raised in 70 AD. Get to break the news to you, but we weren't. And also notice Christ says that this raising of the dead on the last day is the will of my Father. This is identical to what we saw in John chapter 5. Is this something you want to play around with? His will, his mission, his purpose? And so what do we have here? Again, we have a fuller doctrine, a fuller view of the doctrine of resurrection. We have sin being dealt with in the here and now. We have death being finally and completely dealt with for the elect in the future. We have those who are rebellious to Christ who will be resurrected at least physically to stand before Christ in judgment and be sentenced to eternal condemnation and the second death. And all of this is the working of the Father and the working of the Son. All of this is the will of the Father and the will of the Son. All of this is his mission and his work. Beloved, let us stand in awe let us fear and tremble and fall before this mighty king in repentance and worship. That is, this is not a doctrine to be mocked, to be doubted, to be trifled with. This is the will and mission of our Father and of his Lord, and of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.